2: I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm John Fort with Deidre Bosa and Julia Borston. Carl is off. Today, Dash drops cash on an acquisition as shares rocket higher. Is this the top or just the beginning? We will tell you why the stock is actually getting downgraded by somebody today, though there are also some price target hikes. Plus, the other side of the coin is, well, coin getting crushed after a revenue miss. That stock is now back below its IPO price. So Later, does Tesla finally have a legitimate competitor in EVs? Amazon certainly hopes so, Rivian set to go public in one of the biggest IPOs of all time. At early indications, it'll be larger than Ford and GM when it opens for trading. And we've got the CEOs of Unity, TV and Doximity all on earnings all this hour. D?
0: Yeah, John, lots to get to. Can't take our eyes off of that Rivian indicated open. But before we get to some of those sharp moves in stocks and IPOs, we do want to start with a broader look at the market. A measure of inflation came in very hot this morning. CPI seeing its largest surge in three decades. That hit tech stocks. So they as a sector have recovered a bit this morning. High flyers like AMD, NVIDIA, Atlassian leading us lower, but also, we're looking at big cap tech, Alphabet, Meta, Apple, Microsoft. They have all been lower this morning by about a percent or more. Turning to a stock in the green, though, to start off, DoorDash a big in early trading, now seeing shares up more than 16 percent. It was a mixed but solid quarter with a revenue beat but wider than expected losses. It was Dash's $8 billion acquisition, though, of delivery company Volt that turned shares around post-earnings. Here is CEO Tony Hsu with Jim last night
3: our international business particularly in Canada Australia and Japan are our fastest growing markets and from third party estimates we actually gained meaningful market share uh, in the quarter as well as this year and, and with today's you know news it really you know the partnership with Volta really lay the foundation for us to operate across you know over 20 countries
0: Haskett thinks today's surge might be the top and takes the win, downgrading Dash to a hold this morning. John, I get it. This is one of the most richly valued gig economy plays. But you got a question. Does it does Tony Hsu deserve that kind of premium?
2: Well, he's executing. And when you look at the efficiency of DoorDash, when you look at the growth rate, they're managing to grow faster while spending less. Yes, there's still uh, losses happening here. But the model seems promising, Julia. I mean, you look at Um, their ambitions beyond restaurant. You think DoorDash, you tend to think food delivery, but right now they've got, let's see, 40,000 non-restaurant partners in the marketplace. I mean, they're expanding into last mile solutions, into grocery, into convenience, into a lot of different categories that are going to make them a player in, uh, I mean, the total addressable market just keeps getting bigger.
4: A lot of different categories, and there's certainly a lot of consumers that were turned on to DoorDash during the pandemic. But you got to wonder how much they're really counting on this international growth because they've already seen so much of the growth they're going to get, a real pull forward due to the pandemic. I mean, that Gordon Haskett uh, analyst note notes that there isn't a lot of information about the financials of Volt. And yes, it has a big reach, but it's unclear how profitable that reach is, Deirdre. So I wonder going forward (laughs) if this acquisition is really because you got to go into international in order to be able to justify that valuation. In the business model,
0: you're seeing that change a little bit, John. It used to be just this platform to connect buyers with merchants, users with merchants, but now they're getting more vertically integrated, right, with DashMart, That is actually owning part of this. It used to be an asset light model, still a very expensive one, but they're going to need more capital to develop their micro-fulfillment centers, Julia. So the proposition for investors changes a little bit, and we know that Uber is trying to get into the space as well.
4: Absolutely. We just talked to uh, that robot delivery company that is working with Uber Eats as they work on their last mile delivery. And just note, DoorDash shares now up about 16 percent. So let's turn to Coinbase, a different story they're weaker than expected revenue for the quarter, plus another decline in monthly users having a big impact on the stock this morning. Those shares are down right now more than three percent. Here's our friend Dan Dolov of Mizuho on Fast Money last night with some pretty harsh words on those results.
5: I think this was a pretty bad quarter and, and it all comes down to me. said, it all comes down to the yield, the take rate. Right, um, Robinhood. We're long Robinhood as well. Robinhood is giving it away for free. Uh, Coinbase is charging a lot of money to trade in and out. And what you're seeing is that the pricing pressure in crypto is coming in at a much faster pace than people were anticipating. And I think that's to me kind of the biggest bear uh, case out there.
4: Pricing pressure in crypto. Pricing pressure in trading. Deirdre, what do you think is going to happen next? Well. With all due respect to Dan
0: yes, he's looking at the quarter, which was a disappointing one. But as Brian Armstrong said on the call last night, of course, and what we've been saying all along is this is a long term story. Is Coinbase going to be sort of the go to platform, not just for crypto trading, but for NFTs, for further expansion? And there was an interesting point on the call, John, which I don't know was overlooked. But Armstrong said that he actually did meet with Gary Gensler, the SEC chair, and that the talk was very productive baby steps, perhaps, but steps all the same. And if Coinbase wants to position itself as sort of the platform cooperating with regulators in the sort of wild west of crypto, there could be something there for investors to chew on for the long term.
2: What do you know? Talking more productive than tweeting. Who'd have thunk it? I think it is a bit of a yellow flag, at least, though. Look at so many cryptocurrencies at or near all-time highs. It used to be that stocks like Coinbase moved in tandem with those, it, you know, when Bitcoin and, and Ether were higher. So was Coinbase. Not the case now. So now we'll see how quickly they mature. Meantime, the IPO of the morning and possibly the year is Rivian. EV maker pricing above the range set to open any minute now at a valuation north of $70 billion. Well, north at this point. Phil LeBeau has more on that debut. Hey, Phil.
5: Hey, John, active morning, especially if you are somebody watching Rivian and saying, boy, where is it going to open up at? $78 a share was the pricing, but most believe it's going to open up far higher. There's RJ Scaringe, founder and CEO of the company, ringing the NASDAQ virtually. Ringing the opening bell at the company's plant in Normal, Illinois. By the way, this IPO is expected to raise more than $11 billion for the company. What are they going to do with it? Well, they're going to add another plant. This is the plant right now in Normal, Illinois. They're going to look for a second plant. Haven't identified a final location yet. This plant that you're looking at right here, it will reach full capacity. At least that's the expectation from Rivian by late 2023. And they are coming online at a time when demand for electric vehicles is accelerating. It was expected by many that you would see 2 million in EV sales maybe by 2027, 2028. Oh no, that timeline has moved up. Now most expect we'll hit 2 million in annual EV sales here in the U.S. by 2025. As you take a look at the market cap of the automakers here in the United States, not all of them, but four of the primary ones, especially when it comes to electric vehicles right now. You've got General Motors, Tesla. Obviously, Tesla has the largest market cap of any automaker in the world. Then you've got GM, Ford, and Lucid, and now you're going to have Rivian coming in potentially with a market cap of what, 104, 107 billion, and. Guys, that is not a surprise, given the excitement that we've seen regarding electric vehicles and what we see with Tesla's market cap. It's not a surprise that you're seeing Rivian come in with potentially with a market cap north of $100 billion.
2: Yeah, it seems that maybe investors uh, have a lot of questions that they might want to ask Before getting in uh, at that sort uh, of of a height, Uh, Phil, I wonder what benchmarks. It's easy to forget how hard this is. You know, at this point, Tesla maybe kind of makes it look easy, but execution, not easy in EVs. What are the benchmarks you're going to be looking for from Rivian to see if they can scale and really compete here?
5: Well, it's going to be the the benchmarks that they've thrown out there in terms of their projection for production ramping up and hitting full capacity by the end of 2023. John, I think part of the enthusiasm here is that some people look at Rivian and they say, is this a proxy for if Amazon was in the auto business? Amazon owns 20 percent of Rivian. They've got an order for 100,000 electric delivery vehicles, electric delivery vans. By the way, that's going to increase in the future. The first ones are expected to be delivered by the end of this year. That's a nice little base to have there, 100,000 already in the pocket, and there's going to be more orders to come in the future.
0: Phil, thanks so much for that. We're going to stay with Rivian, and our next guest is going to talk about Rivian. In terms of this era that we're in, forget we work for Theranos. Eric Newcomer says that today's debut may be the start of the next tech apocalypse. He is author of The Newcomer. Substack joins us now. Eric, good to have you. Uh, I see Raven sort of as this one in one thousand shot, priced like a one in ten. But how is that any different or not different from some of the other plays, ones that you mentioned, but even some of the other stocks in this meme stock era.
1: Uh, yeah, the euphoria around Rivian keeps making uh, the bear case easier and easier. I mean, it's it's pretty simple. You know, it's a company that's producing cars that hasn't delivered many of them, hasn't pro- promised like a thousand this year, is waffling between whether it will generate zero or one million dollars in revenue this year. It's a company that's losses are going to have to accelerate. Yes, it's going to raise a ton of money in this IPO, given the pricing, but The amount of car money that car companies spend is enormous. So Mm -hmm. building up the kind of scale requires excellent execution. And so, you know, there are lots of businesses where you can get really sucked into the story. But the problem with car companies is, you know, they have to deliver quarter after quarter on a fundamentally low margin business that requires a lot of operational excellence, some of which you just have to learn over time. Even if you're the smartest new car company around, it just takes time to figure out the process, learn from your mistakes, and deliver.
0: Right, Eric, and I think that's key, is that making cars is a very expensive, capital-intensive business. And the fact that this company could go public with a valuation of more than $100 billion today, that's a risk in and of itself, because even though it is raising tens of billions of dollars or has raised that much, it needs to continue to raise money. So any further bad headlines could hurt the ability, when it's a public company, to raise more money in the capital markets.
1: Right, I mean, I, I was looking, you know, Ford, which I think, you know, Rivian is now on track maybe to have a larger market cap than Ford at this point. But you know, Ford's costs and expenses for its automotive unit came to 117 billion dollars in 2020. I mean, the beauty of a functioning car company is that they have a lot of revenue to offset those costs and expenses, and so then you know they only lost 1.2 billion, right? But, but you need to have the revenue coming coming in to generate to cover the spending that you're going to have to do to operate a car company. I mean, Tesla's cost of revenue in 2020 was $25 billion. So given the initial projections for the IPO, that's more than the $17 billion that Rivian thought it would have on hand after this whole process. So you just have to think if it's going to operate on the scale of a Tesla, compete with Ford on market cap, and not have the revenues to cover the expenses. This, this is a company that at scale is going to have to burn a lot of money to deliver on on what people want here.
4: Yeah, Eric, as we await that first trade indication is at $122 a share. I have to ask though, what do you think is gonna be the catalyst that is going to cause this bubble, as you describe it, to burst? And what do you think the impact could be outside of Rivian itself?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Tesla obviously is sort of, has been the most fascinating stock to watch this whole period. And, you know, defenders of Rivian would say many of the things that I'm sort of arguing against uh, Rivian, you could say about Tesla at the time. So obviously, you know, Tesla is an electric vehicle company that's proved to people over time that it can deliver on some of what it promises, continue to grow and excite investors. Um, But, you know, Tesla is an extremely valuable company. And part of the reason I think we're seeing this euphoria around Rivian is the multiples uh, that Tesla trades on. And the reality is. Mm -hmm that there's more competition now, right? I mean, traditional automakers are getting in on this, Rivian's adding to the competition. So yes, there's a desire from the public, from the governments. I mean, I certainly believe in the move to electric. It's not like I don't believe in electric vehicles, but it's just a competitive space that lots mm-hmm. of players are going to want to compete in. You know, and people were excited about airlines at one point, and then it turned out, you know, you just have a lot of airlines and it drives down costs. It's good for the consumer, but it's bad for high market cap companies. And that's, that's the risk here in terms of huge events. I don't know. You know, it's just like uh, it's hard, hard to guess when the music stops and anyone who's been saying that it's all going to stop, you know, would be wrong. So I'm not going to say what ends it, but uh, it could happen someday.
0: Right. And you're, you know, investors, retail investors getting into the stock right now, increasingly paying a lot for the probability that Rivian will make it. As you say, Eric, only one Elon Musk in your piece. Right. Eric, so we'll exactly. talk to you again soon. And we will continue to stay all over this IPO as we watch that opening trade uh, with an indication to for that company to open at a market cap of more than $100 billion, indicated right now at 120 bucks. John.
2: Yeah. Well, the music always stops eventually. Uh, the CEO of Unity is after the break. Plus, Tesla loses an Intel in just three days. We'll explain next. Tech Check. Just getting started.
4: As we rate Rivian, let's get a gut check on Tesla. Take a look at those shares sliding since Elon Musk took to Twitter asking his followers whether he should sell 10% of Tesla's stock over the weekend. Tesla also suffering its biggest drop for the year yesterday, closing lower by 12%. The company has now lost around $207 billion in market value. That's like losing an entire Intel in just the span of three days. And in the history of the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, Musk's losses represent the biggest two-day decline ever. But shares are bouncing back up about 4.5% today, and the stock is still up 50% this year. Bank of America raising its price target to $1,200. That's 12% upside from where we are right about now.
0: Yeah, Musk's wealth will be okay, Julia. Turning to what else? The metaverse. Unity stock, seeing a boost this morning after beating third-quarter expectations for earnings. And revenue, as well as raising its full year guidance. The company also announcing that it intends to buy Lord of the Rings visual effects maker Weta Digital for more than. $1.6 $1.6 billion in cash and stock. Unity would retain all the company's engineers and name WEDA's chief technology officer, Joe Marks, as CTO of oh. Unity. Joining us now, Unity CEO, John Riccatello. John, great to have you with us today. We, when we look across sort of great the gaming metaverse, leading players include Unity, Roblox, Take Two, Epic, but valuation still all over the place. How should investors value companies in this early but growing category?
8: look, I'm not sure the metaverse is exactly a category, but I would say that, um, look, when you think about the metaverse, what I think most people are talking about is Web 3.0. But instead of being at a 2D presentation, it's 3D, it's real time, it's interactive. And, you know, companies that make games, you know, whether it's Roblox or, you know, it's Activision, those are going to be important destinations in the theme park we're going to call the metaverse or Web 3.0. Where Unity participates is in the content creation for that. So more than 50% of everything that is real-time 3D in the world, that new metaverse thesis, is built in Unity. Whether it's on a game console, a PC, a mobile device, um, an XR device, HoloLens, Quest, it's usually built in Unity. So we're we're the underlying tool set for creating the metaverse, and we're also... Um, a set of services around monetization, analytics, hosting, voice for operating those businesses. But we're not a direct competitor for companies like a Roblox or Minecraft or, you know, World of Warcraft or whatever, where they make consumer applications.
0: Right. So to that point, John, you have the ability to reach many more developers, many more parts of this ecosystem than, say, a Roblox, which is creating one of these universes. So back to the question, how should investors be valuing a company like yours versus, you know, a pure gaming company that's not building the tools necessarily? Well, look,
8: I think gaming companies, I mean, it's hard to say this anymore directly than to say, I just think we're in entirely different categories. And, you know, I don't know how to how to, you know, parse how one should should value Roblox. It's a great company with a product that millions of people love, but it is one destination in the metaverse. And Unity is a SaaS software company. We build tools and services for literally what I think are going to be millions of companies that are going to operate in the metaverse space. So we're, in a lot of ways, maybe um, cast it back to the, you know, 1849, you know, there are companies that had gold mines and then there was Levi Strauss we're the, we're the Levi's of this thing. We're not necessarily building a metaverse destination, a ride in the theme park. We're the underlying tool set and infrastructure. We just reported a 43% um, quarter. We've been hitting above 40 every quarter for the last couple of years. Keep you know, beating our numbers and raising guidance. We're just a different category. Um, I love this company. We get to really define how the metaverse is going to come together and the way we pull our tools together. And Weta, you know, the recent acquisition we just described, Weta Digital, not the special effects house, but the technology team and tools, that's going to help us do it even faster, bigger, better.
2: Yeah, John, uh, (laughs) I don't like this whole metaverse messaging thing. I mean, I I appreciate... What Unity does and the category and the growth in 3D and the use of that, not only in gaming, but across different categories in corporate. But I think there are some other companies, Facebook included, that are trying to glob onto that uh, and don't necessarily have all the products and business built yet. But anyway. Um your thoughts on that. I I agree with you there. Yeah. (laughs) I agree with you. you. I mean the
8: metaverse thing means so many different things to so many different people. If you go back to our S1 and what we've been saying for years, we're about the creation of real-time 3D applications. We described in our S1 over a year ago how that would manifest itself in a new version of the web. We didn't use the word metaverse, but whenever you get a hold of one of these memes, it seems like it runs its course. I don't know if this one's going to run its course or hang for you know, around forever, but I can tell you we know where we play, and it's a it's a real business. It's not a, a bank on some definition that I think most people you know would quibble over.
2: Quickly, Weta, how do you expand the influence and value of that uh, outside clearly of movies, even outside of gaming, into some of the categories uh, where corporate customers? where others who are trying to build meaningful and deep 3D experiences uh, would get value from it?
8: Well, so in, that's probably the easiest question in the world to answer, because as we stand today, what is tools, the most powerful collection of dozens of tools, from city builder to water simulation to human creation to hair and all the rest of the stuff that an artist would want to do, they've got by far the most compelling Collection of tools the world's ever seen, but they're trapped inside of a of a special effects house, a wonderful you know, special effects house run by you know Peter Jackson and his team. But what we're going to first do is take them to the rest of the film industry. Then we're going to take them to the rest of the game industry, and. You know, City Builder is an example, which allows you to build dynamic living cities, is exactly what architects and engineers and construction organizations and people that are planning, you know, traffic simulation, et cetera, we want to use. So we're really in this lucky position to have come to an agreement over the most powerful collection of artist tools the world's ever seen with really obvious application from one studio, if you will, Weta, to the rest of the film industry. the rest of the game industry and to industry after industry that's going to need these dozens of tools to participate in the new 3.0 applications they're going to want in the new web.
0: Mm -hmm. And John, we've been looking at some of the images and technology on the screen as you've been talking. Never fail to amaze. John Riccatello. thank you. We'll talk to you again soon.
8: Thanks so much
4: big hour tech tech continues the CEO of Doximity is with us as that stock gets crushed down over 12% this morning plus the CEO of Fubo TV that's next a similar story there ahead of Disney's earnings tonight we're back in a moment
9: canva presents unexplained appearances it was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air also
5: it's eerily on brand And on it, there will
3: be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
0: of a detour. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Julia Borston. The Amazon back debut of Rivian is just moments away. Latest indications on that monster IPO. In just a moment, that 120 right now was as high as 125.
6: First, though, time for a news update with Rahel Solomon. Rahel, good morning. Hey, Dieter, good morning. President Biden says that reversing the trend to higher inflation is a top priority. He is asking his economic advisors to look for ways to reduce energy costs and also asking regulators to target any market manipulation in that sector. President's statement comes about an hour after the Labor Department said that consumer prices Jumped 0.9% in October compared to September, well above expectations. CPI is up 6.2% over the last year, a 30-year high. And even with volatile food and energy prices removed, the core rate was up 0.6%. That is a 4.6% gain over the past year, also a 30-year high. President Biden, though, appears happier with a new pandemic low for initial unemployment claims. They fell last week by 4,000 to 267000 as the job market continues to gain strength. And today's economic numbers have moved up expectations for the Federal Reserve's first interest rate hike. Based on prices in the Fed Fund's futures market, traders increasingly expect that it'll happen as early as July of next year instead of September. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you.
2: Rahel, thank you. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona wants a near $30 billion increase for education in the budget, and that's going to be a tough sell to Republicans in particular. I spoke with Cardona at the National Summer Learning Association National Conference in Washington, D.C. yesterday. I asked him how the Biden administration hopes to use those funds and technology to address the skills gap and bridge the digital divide.
7: We're going to make sure that Uh, We're creating a more clear through line between our K-12 system, our two-year college, our four-year college, and the workforce. There are jobs right now, high-paying, high-skilled jobs that are not filled. We need to do better making those connections. And in the budget proposal and the framework, uh, there are billions of dollars for workforce preparation programs. Community colleges are the backbones. I've visited dozens of community colleges in the last seven, eight months. And I see those graduates getting jobs before they finish. There's a 21%, on average, 21% increase in salary when you graduate a two-year school. Our workforce partners need to be at the table designing programming, making those connections, and uh, this is a big part of the president's plan. This is a big part of the Department of Education's focus moving forward, not only in policy but on resources.
2: What is the right role of technology and the federal government's role in sort of setting the boundaries or incentives around that in getting to that place that you're referring to here. Uh, certainly there's some spending involved, but you know, right now there's almost a bit of a, t- a technological backlash, right? Mm-hmm. People don't want classes just to over zoom But you were just talking about a teen in the Midwest who you talked to who had access to AP classes, right? Because a a, a teacher who was states away was able to teach that. So, So how do you thread
7: the needle? You know, think about the potential here if we maximize the benefits of blended learning or if... Uh, if we maximize the, the potential of technology and the positive impact it can have. If it weren't for technology, if it wasn't for bandwidth, uh, many of our students wouldn't have access to basic education over the last 18 months. Yes, it's good. Now, are we tired of just remote? In many places, we are. And I think our families and our students need that interaction. But as you mentioned, you know, for our students in rural communities, Think about the doors that can open for them, when they can study fields uh, with people that are gonna be instructing them that are not necessarily next to them because maybe their schools don't offer the uh, that robust uh, uh, options. Um, think about that student that can take classes with a professor across the country to learn a skill that that community needs. Mm-hmm. You know, there's tremendous upside to this. You know, I look forward to, in the very near future, saying that the digital divide is in our rear view mirror where we have access. Uh, we know the, the laptop or the device is the new pencil. It's not a luxury anymore. It's not a luxury anymore. Uh, students' currency of communication now involves technology, and we need to understand that education must embrace that and prepare students not only for the technology of today, but for the changing technology. Our schools must prepare students how to navigate internationally through technology and through the the upside that it provides not only in education but in commerce and so many other ways there was a lot more to
2: the conversation you can catch the entire fort knox conversation with secretary cardona streamed on our twitter page at cnbc tech check Dee,
0: great conversation john Uh, meanwhile nasdaq lower by about half a percent and investors getting dip with their chips this morning amd nvidia among the top laggers on the nasdaq 100 Still up though, double digits for the month. The CEO of FUBO TV is with us next. Stay here.
4: Shares of Fubo sinking after the streamer posted its Q3 results last night, larger than expected losses. There, though, the company has now topped one million subscribers six years after its launch. Ahead of Disney earnings, which are coming up after the bell, let's bring in Fubo TV CEO David Gandler. David, thanks for talking to us this morning. As we watch your stock just plummet this morning, I've been talking to analysts. It sounds like there are concerns about the $185 million acquisition of a French streaming company, and also concerns about guidance for average revenue per user declining in the fourth quarter. What's your message to investors now?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's the message is clear. Q3 was an, a phenomenal quarter. We uh, exceeded um, expectations across every uh, KPI, triple-digit growth. Um, you know, we set out to launch a betting uh, app at the beginning of the year. We did exactly what we said. This is a company that executes extremely well. Frankly, when we first came on your show, I think it was just uh, a year ago, we were at about 286,000 paying subscribers and everyone thought that growth was probably impossible. So we're very happy with the, uh, our current growth rate. Uh, we've raised guidance uh, again, uh, four quarters now uh, for full year 2021. And our adjusted EPS came in at 59, uh, minus 59 cents, which was uh, better than consensus of minus 65 cents. So uh, again, we feel really good. The Molotov acquisition, I just want to be clear uh, with you guys that we're not going out to crush uh, competitors in, in new markets. the uh, The reality is that this was a wonderful company that has a significant amount of talent. Uh, they have a fantastic technology platform, and uh, you know, Fubo and Molotov use the same tooling. we have the same infrastructure, um, and we have very similar operating models so for us, this uh, made a complete sense to power our U.S. business. As you know, there's a, a very constrained labor market in the United States. This allows us to really open up our, our capabilities, uh, you know, for the U.S. to de-risking our situation.
4: But, David, you're, you're- – David, your stock is trading down more than 17% right now. We're going to be hearing from Disney after the bell. Disney has been investing more in ESPN Plus and in getting those sports rights for ESPN Plus. We've been hearing about sports rights for Paramount Plus, Amazon. How do you see yourself being positioned in this competitive landscape where sports rights are pricier than ever and there's more competition than ever?
3: Yeah, look, it's a great question, which is the reason why you should be investing in FuboTV. TV we're aggregating all of the, uh, the most expensive sports content in the world. 96% of our total subscriber base watches sports. As you know, in the cable ecosystem, about 30% of customers watch sports. So when you raise prices due to sports uh, acquisitions, what happens is the 70% that don't watch sports typically don't want to pay. So Fubo has a, a high quality premium subscriber base. We have pricing power. You continue to see that in our growing ARPU, and uh, you know, we're continuing to execute quite well. So uh, I think over the long haul, if anyone can afford to, to, uh, to raise prices on consumers, it's going to be Fubo.
0: Right. At the same time, Julie mentioned ESPN Plus in the sports streaming landscape. But what about the likes of YouTube TV, which is estimated to have around four million subscribers, making it the largest, if that's true, largest Internet TV provider in the U.S.? How do you compete with them while raising your prices if you can? And does that sort of do you think that average revenue per user could decline further in the future as you do compete?
3: Well, uh, just to be clear, I don't know why you believe that uh, average revenue per user is declining. Uh, It's actually up 10% year over year. We uh, continue to see strength uh, in our attachment rates. We've sold 2.2 million attachments. Uh, We're very comfortable that we'll be able to continue to raise our um, long-term Marpus over the long haul. In fact, our long-term targets are roughly around 80% subscription revenue, 20% ad revenue. So uh, we feel very comfortable about uh, our ability to do that. As it relates to YouTube TV, uh, I'm actually glad you brought that point up. Uh, I can tell you there was a time when YouTube was at $3 million and we were at 100000 So uh, it's been clear that the market's growing at roughly about 31% year over year. Fubo is growing at 100% year over year. So we're obviously taking market share. And last but not least, if you look at the uh, traditional cable ecosystem, they've lost roughly about $1.2 million Um, You know, subscribers in the third quarter. Fubo added, you know, just about twenty percent of those churned customers onto its platform. So, if you extrapolate out ten years and you believe the market's worth fifty million, I don't think it's outrageous to believe that we'll be able to attract somewhere between ten and twenty percent of uh, subscribers over the long haul. So, we, we feel really comfortable where we are, and it's not a zero sum game.
4: And we certainly have been talking a lot about this shift. From linear to streaming, and of course you have the whole betting piece as well. David, thanks exactly. so much for talking to us. We hope you'll Thank be you. back soon.
3: Absolutely. Thank you guys.
4: And speaking of streamers, and speaking of streamers, I'll be speaking with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. That's tonight at about 5.30 PM Eastern on Fast Money. And we're going to be diving into that interview here on Tech Tech tomorrow as well.
2: That is a big one. Looking forward to that. Meantime, Bitcoin hitting a new all-time high today. TechChak is back in a moment. <laughs>
4: Meta announcing it's integrating its Facebook Workplace product with Microsoft Teams. As part of this partnership, users of Workplace can share information inside of Microsoft Teams without having to switch between the two apps. The company is also adding the ability to stream Teams meetings into Workplace groups by next year. Head of product for Workplace uh, telling us that they're responding to customers who use both products and want them to work together.
8: Both Microsoft and um, Meta and and Workplace specifically, we both believe that we need to, as being leaders in this industry, we need to make our our tools work together in valuable ways and to innovate together.
4: I asked Ujwal Singh if Meta is focused on driving the growth of Workplace because of all the criticism and challenges at its core apps around misinformation, as well as the negative impact on teens
8: we have less challenges than the consumer apps do because of the things that you mentioned, because it's tied to your work identity. It's a much more controlled environment. Uh, So it's less about like trying to branch out into that. It's tied to our mission and it's less complicated in some ways than the actual consumer apps, the problems that the consumer apps have to deal with.
4: Meta and Microsoft were already partnered on Microsoft Azure, OneDrive, and Microsoft Office. And it sounds like they're going to continue building these partnerships as they expand into the metaverse. What else, John? I know (laughs) you're still a metaverse skeptic. There the
2: metaverse goes again. Anybody else forget that Facebook Workplace was a thing? I think they got like 7 million paid subs while Microsoft Teams has around 150 million. Is this capitulation is what I wonder when I see this, the uh, I don't know. I mean, we'll we'll see how quickly they can grow it from seven to more than ten, and maybe Good up to Good question. Yeah.
0: And you know, John Riccatello was on your page, Sean, when it came to the overuse of the word metaverse. Maybe we should just be using <laughs> Web 3.0. Maybe we'll do that for a lot of marketing
2: show. dollars behind metaverse. <laughs> a lot of marketing dollars.
0: Yeah, much to many's dismay, certainly. Uh, As we had to break, guys, check out Shares of Palantir. If you're wondering if the good times are over, RBC thinks so. Downgrading the company to sell after revenue growth slowed. Those shares down 5% today. But it's a stock that is down 40% since February. Still up, though, 150% since its IPO a year ago. More tech check is straight ahead. Stay with us. There isn't enough time to get to all the earnings movers, but take a look at Ring Central, a standout today. The cloud-based communications company soaring on the back of strong earnings, up more than 25%. John it now has a 27 billion dollar market cap.
2: Yeah, good day for Blachman is for sure. Heading in the other direction is Poshmark, shares plunging after the company misses on the top and bottom lines, alongside downgrades from MKM and William Blair. Uh, if you gotten in on the IPO in January, you'd be even more underwater. Shares priced at $42 per share and are down quite a bit since then. You can see it now around 17 a share. Shares now a whopping 84% off their highs of the year, Julia.
4: And, John, we're still keeping an eye on what could be one of the biggest debuts of the year, Rivian. Those shares currently indicating to open at $120. That would give it a valuation north of $100 billion. We're back in a moment.
2: Welcome back. New indications the opening of Rivian you can see it there at 115 just a couple minutes ago is at 120 was looking as high, perhaps as 125. Of course, don't worry uh, if you like big numbers because this priced in the 70s and is looking to open well above that again with a, an implied market cap uh, in the neighborhood of 100 billion dollars. Meanwhile, Doximity, the digital platform for medical professionals, says it's got around 80 percent of U.S. doctors in its network out with Q2 results. Stock getting hit hard this morning despite a 76% jump in revenue. With us now is Doximity CEO Jeff Tangney. Uh, Jeff, good to have you. So uh, the lockup expiration due this week is probably uh, what people are trying to uh, get ahead of here. But the growth, particularly um, uh, for large customers, seems to be strong. Give us some color on what you're seeing happening in your customer base.
9: Yeah, well, thanks for for having me, John. Obviously, a big week for us here as we report our earnings and hit our our lockup. A quick reminder, you know, at Doximity, we build software to help doctors save time uh, to provide better care for their patients. So today, over 80% of all U.S. physicians are active members on our platform, and we power millions of digital interactions each day with them. Telehealth video calls, e-signatures, news on the latest treatments and therapies, and yeah, it was a really strong quarter for us. We had an 8% beat on the top line, and we raised 10% for the year, which only has four and a half months left. So we raised $30 million on our, our top line from uh, 298 to 327 uh, at the midpoint of our range, uh, which we think is, is strong growth. And we're doing it profitably, 41% EBITDA margin, and pleased that all nine of the analysts who cover us raise their price targets.
2: Uh, doctors and medical professionals spend a lot of money, so that's an important audience for a lot of people who want to market to and get their brands in front of them. Uh, tell me about the ROI that you're seeing from that interaction.
9: Yeah, yeah. So the way we work with our partners, which are the, the best brands of medicine, all of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and the top hospitals, uh, we work with them on these year-long programs where we work on getting them more patient referrals for a particular surgery center or that type of thing. And the nice thing is there's third-party data out there from IQVIA and other companies that can then measure our ROI uh, completely independently. And we did uh, dozens of these studies last quarter, and we saw our median ROI went up to to 17-to-1. So our average client return for every $1 they spent on marketing with us, they got $17 back in profit which is really good for them. They traditionally look for a two to three times return on their marketing investment. So they're, they're pretty happy with us. And that led us to have a 173% net revenue retention rate or growth within our existing clients of 73% over the past 12 months, uh, which we think shows that they're, they're pleased with how we're doing and that our land and expand sales motion uh, is working.
4: Yeah, Jeff, I'm curious, as you look ahead to future growth next year, how much of your growth is going to be about adding new customers versus taking the customers who are already telehealth subscribers in and getting them to add on other services? And if you're concerned about any of that growth being hampered by the fact that people are going to be seeing more of their doctors in person post-pandemic.
9: Yeah, yeah, no, a bulk of questions. Uh, I will say, as we look out to next year's growth, again, we see a decade-long shift here. Uh, to digital inside of pharma and healthcare more broadly. I mean, in 2020, they only spent 28 percent of their marketing budgets digitally. And that's when the Fortune 500 spent more than double that, 63 percent. So, you know, they could double their digital spend and still be a laggard relative to other industries. And as more and more doctors are closing their door to traditional sales reps, uh, you know, only uh, only 21 percent of oncologists now in the U.S. still see Uh, reps, uh, traditional reps, we think that 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 shift to digital will accelerate. And again, we're going to be part of a decades long secular shift in that direction. So we don't think we really even need to add new clients to continue to have this kind of high growth. But that said, we have had medical device companies and diagnostic companies, whole new markets come to us. It's still smaller as a percent of our revenue, but we signed our first seven figure deal with a medical device company this past quarter. So we do see other other vectors grow.
2: All right. Well, uh, strong numbers within the report, uh, despite what the stock might be doing at uh, any given minute. Jeff, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Our one more thing this morning is Citadel's Ken Griffin at DealBook with our Andrew Ross Sorkin talking. Elon Musk, have a listen.
8: I never thought we'd let our ownership stakes be dictated by a poll on Twitter. But I think it was a move by him to highlight some of the issues at play with respect to wine's tax policy. We don't want tax policy to drive great entrepreneurs like Elon out of their seats. I mean, if you think about it, it's a relatively small number of American entrepreneurs have radically changed our society over the last 20 years, much for the better, some for the worse. But these individuals like Elon Musk, like Jeff Bezos, have transformed life. And we want to keep them in control of their companies as long as they've got the energy and the ambition to keep moving the business forward. So you don't want them selling? I personally don't want to see him selling.
0: Some for the better, some for the worse. He named some of the good case scenarios like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. I suppose that's open for debate. But so is someone like Mark Zuckerberg, Julia. (laughs) Retaining his voting rights and ownership stake allows him to do a lot of that business to the chagrin of some.
4: Yeah, certainly. And John, you just got to watch how much this might influence future CEOs to want to maintain control the way we've seen the likes of Zuckerberg and Musk do.
2: Yeah, uh, indeed. So many different ways, well, really a couple, that people pronounce Bezos. I wonder why. Uh, not Bezos. sure about that. But uh, <laughs> that meanwhile, <laughs> DoorDash, as we mentioned, still up about 14.5%, D.
0: Yeah, and we are watching Rivian, right? Latest indication that those shares would open at 115 a share.
2: You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a
3: highway.